Fashion and beauty are serious business. On this podcast, we will hear from amazing creative entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore their unique success stories, learn from experts, and hear about their journeys. Steve Jobs famously said that, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So let's get crazy. I'm your host, Ann Zuckerman, and this is the Just Wanted to Ask podcast. Ladies, have you ever had one of those uncomfortable headlight moments? Don't you want to be heard without distraction? Bezzy broad discs are your solution. Go to justwantedtoask.com and look for Bezzy broad discs. Hello, everyone. I am thrilled today to have with me Martina Kwan. Martina was born in Hong Kong to a German mother and a Chinese father. Martina was destined for a life that was different. She spent her childhood in Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, but credits living in war-torn Beirut, Lebanon, between the ages of 8 and 10, as an experience that defined much of her fearlessness today. Her unique path in life has shaped her into a woman of drive and determination. After earning two Master of Science degrees, she worked as a senior management consultant in New York with KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Wall Street's Lehman Brothers. Eventually, she landed senior management roles with Ian Schrager Properties, the Hudson Hotel, and the Paramount Hotel. Ultimately, Martina's strong entrepreneurial spirit led her to leave the corporate world and to open her own business and win, win nine Furniture Design Awards with Neoteric Luxury Outdoor Collections. She had previously won Telly and Emmy Awards with her first company she founded, So Animation. Daring to be different is what drives Martina today, literally. Seven years ago, at the age of 50, Martina knew it was time to take a race, a car racing hobby she occasionally enjoyed to the next level. Proving that it's never too late, she decided to become a race car driver. Since her debut as a race car driver, Martina has become a three-time champion in a male-dominated racing category in her Porsche 911. She set track records in each of her Porsche car classes. In addition, she is an FIA licensed race car driver and drove professionally in the GT World Challenge series. A proud mother of two daughters, she's also a relationship coach who specializes in helping women 40 plus find their soulmate in three to six months. She also hosts her signature Extreme Confidence Mastermind, Women's Retreats in Malibu, California, which are meant to turn challenges into new beginnings. Using revolutionary mind-shifting techniques, she helps people break through limiting beliefs, blockages, and solve any problems that are holding them back. One of her life missions is to inspire people to believe in themselves. Anything is possible at any age. 
<laughs> that was an amazing, amazing amount of information. And it's so exciting to have you here. Um, I'm sorry I got tongue-tied, but it <laughs> I I actually jumped in and I was my brain was spinning as I was reading. So you learned self-reliance at a very, very early age. Tell us about that part of your life, and then we're going to move forward into what you're doing now and, of course, race car driving. Thank you, Anne, and thank you so much, first of all, for having me on your podcast. I'm honored to be here. And so, yeah, our, our life started in Hong Kong, and it was a little different because um, I'm half Chinese and half German uh, living in Hong Kong. And so when you're born two different cultures, it's sort of hard to identify with either one, right? You might, um, I've actually been told, are you Chinese or are you German? Well, I can't really choose. So uh, there was some challenges growing up both and not really knowing what the identity was. But what I realized from a very young age is that I was really independent. It's my personality. I was pretty fearless already as a child. When it came to going to school, I would lead the way and, and just, you know, um, just forge ahead. <laughs> so I noticed about my personality that I was always really independent and pretty fearless. And then we moved to Beirut when I was eight years old. Uh, my stepfather was Lebanese. And so we moved to Beirut, Lebanon. And it was a beautiful city. You know, to begin with, it was known as the Paris of the Middle East. And there was the Mediterranean Sea. So the weather is really beautiful, uh, lush landscaping. So you have the beaches and then one hour behind you, you could go to the mountains and uh, go skiing. And it was just a beautiful place to go to. And we really enjoyed it. We lived in Ras Beirut, uh, which was the Christian neighborhood. And we lived on Bliss Street and um, the American U University of Beirut was close by and I remember my sister and I, my older sister, Veronica, and I, my younger sister was still a baby, Gina, but we would go every day to the American University of Beirut and climb the cypress trees. And on the way, there was a monkey that we would say hi to. And it was just this great um, sort of independent living. I mean, we moved there when I was eight and Veronica was 10. And I don't think I would let my my children are now 17 and 19, but when they were eight and 10, I don't think I would have let them, you know, just mill about, uh, especially because the war started, you know, pretty soon after we moved. And so what happened is the stronghold of the war, it was a civil war. So it was Muslims versus the Christians. And the stronghold uh, was about a mile and a half from our apartment on Bliss Street. And so there was a lot of fighting at night. So during the daytime, it almost seemed like we still had that normal life. Although after a while, we were not able to go through the gun checkpoints and go to our Darjeshura Beirut, the German school. And we had to go to the German embassy to pick up our homework. So Veronica and I would roller skate down to the embassy. We became expert roller skaters because we didn't have school. And we would pick up our homework. But when day turned to night, that's when things shifted. And it was really frightening because we would be, my sister and I shared a room and we would hear gun, gun, machine gun fire in the distance, sort of like da, 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 very quiet. And then it would get louder and louder to indicate that the 
uh, guerrilla fighters were close to our neighborhood. And again, the stronghold was really close. So every night it was just really terrifying. And even though I considered myself independent and fearless in Hong Kong, I was so frightened. I have to admit, I would climb out of my bed and climb into Veronica's bed for comfort. And we would uh, wait there and we would then start hearing uh, what would happen is the guerrilla fighters would come through the neighborhoods on the back of pickup trucks and they would start shooting the machine guns, but also fire off rockets. And what's so scary about the sound of rockets, which really haunted me for quite a while, is it, it it's like a hissing sound. like zzz. And because it was guerrilla warfare, it was rudimentary um, uh, rudimentary rockets that could land anywhere. So even if they wanted to hit a certain target, we could be the next target because it could go any which direction. If you envision um, throwing off a firework and it kind of goes all over the place on July 4th, that's sort of how a real rocket in Beirut, Lebanon could have hit our building. So we would then start hearing the bomb sirens. Um, if you Google it on YouTube, it's kind of a really frightening sound because it indicates you need to take shelter. And so during World War II, they would have it to indicate the bombs coming, you know, and going to the bomb shelters. And in our case, it indicated that the fighters were there and it was time to convene in our, our corridor, which was on the ground floor of our building. And all the neighbors would come down and we would sit huddled on each side of the corridor, kind of just you know, with our knees up, facing facing each other, and just hearing the bombs and explosions going off in the background. And every night, especially that rocket sound would just frighten me to the core. And um, I would wonder, sit there wondering if we were going to be the next people to be hit and to die. So the night times were really, really scary. And but then the the sun came up, the fighters were gone, and it was a new day again. And so what I what I realized is is that you can be so frightened. And what what can you do at that young age to get out of that that fear? And so I had these Barbie dolls and my horse Barbies, and uh, we had a playroom next to the living room, and that was my favorite room. It was bright with sunlight and I would play with the Barbies and I would start daydreaming and just, you know, they were in the stable and then they would get saddled up and go riding in the forest. And I had this very clear daydream in my head of what the forest like, what it smelled like. Uh, smells and sounds are, are really big for me. They, they evoke visceral reactions. <laughs> and so I was just daydreaming and that got me out of my head. So Number one, if you're going through a difficult situation and you want to change the narrative in your mind, daydream. And so people talk about visualization, but I like to just say, just bring it back to childhood terms and daydream. Dream about anything that's going to get you out of the fear, out of the situation, out of, let's say you're a teenager and your parents are fighting, whatever it is, that dreaming is going to help you cope with life. So when you say self-reliance, that was the biggest thing in my life was the daydreaming. And um, I didn't know how powerful it was until we moved to Germany um, a few years later. 
So my mom was German, my father was Chinese, my stepfather was Lebanese, and we lived in Lebanon. And the war wouldn't stop. It was a civil war that lasted over a decade. And so after a few years, you know, there were so many things had been bombed. My grandparents had visited us from Hong Kong, and they stayed at the Holiday Inn, and that was bombed. And if you Google Holiday Inn Beirut, it's still um, an abandoned building from way back when in the 70s. We're talking the early 70s. And so the once beautiful Paris of the Middle East had become a bullet hole, uh, explosion-infected place. And finally, we said, you know what, we need to leave as refugees and move to Germany. And we took just suitcases. And we thought maybe we would be able to come back, but we were never able to go back. So we went to gun checkpoints to Beirut International and went to Germany. And what was amazing is when you're in need and you express the need. So this is lesson number two is a lot of women and men are afraid to ask for help. When you ask for help, people will relate to you. They will come forward and help you. So we were in Germany. We had only our suitcases and we asked for help. And our family came through for us. So it's, you know, it's just the compassion of of giving clothing and um, things to start an apartment, a couch, a car, uh, pots and pans, you know, whatever it is to get started, it's important to ask for help. So, and there's no shame in asking for help. So I'm just saying this and it's affecting me because a lot of people will suffer in silence and not ask for help. So no matter what it is that you're going through, whether you're lonely, whether you feel suicidal thoughts, whether whatever it is, just get it off your chest and it'll feel better and people will come forward and help you and they'll relate to you. So uh, Germany was amazing. It was wonderful to go there and um, just get started. So sorry, I'm just carrying on. Is there another question? <laughs> no, and no, it's wonderful um, for so many reasons, because in reading your about you, you and your story, your visualizations actually became reality when you moved to Germany. Tell us more about that. So we moved to Germany and um, the independence actually really continued and uh, there was no war there. And I really became so involved with horses. And so there we lived uh, in a neighborhood and it took about one and a half hours to get to Poppenbutter. And I would walk, take the train, take buses, and then walk again for another 20 to 30 minutes to get to the riding stable, Reitschneid Kupfatenne. <laughs> and it was amazing to uh, go there. And riding became my huge, huge passion for many years. And what I found myself doing is riding in that same exact forest that I had daydreamed about in Beirut. And it was such an epiphany, such a, an enlightening moment when I was riding through the forest. And just looking around and saying, you know, I've been here. I've been here before. And so what I learned from that is that no matter what it is that you want to achieve, dream about it, and it can become reality. 
So I'm also really big into vision boarding now. So if if you you can put those dreams on paper, you can get cardboard paper from CVS or Rite Aid and you know, get some glue and a pair of scissors and just get random magazines and tear out your stuff and put your dreams on the board. So we do those at, at my retreat. But the visualization is so important. and It helped me so much throughout my life. So when I noticed what happened is I dreamed in Beirut and then it became reality. Is no matter what happened in life, I dreamed at first and then it became reality. When I was in college, I dreamed of working for the best accounting firms in the world. And I ended up working for KPMG and Pricewaterhouse. Then I dreamed about working on Wall Street and I worked at Wall Street. Um, later in my career, I was a real workaholic. I, um, you know, wanted to have children later in life. And then I had Zoe and Coco when I was, you know, in my late 30s. Then I was with my animation company and I wanted to win telly awards and Emmy awards and won two Emmys and four tellies. Same thing in the furniture design business where, yeah, I'm, I guess you can tell big on awards, wanted to win furniture design awards. We won nine. And then finally, seven years ago, when I turned 50 and became a race car driver, what's being a race car driver if you're not a champion, right? If you're not on the podium. So I became a three-time champion race car driver. So the point here is that if you want to achieve things, dream at first and dream big. So many times, this is lesson number three, is so many times um, and in different cultures, it may not be acceptable to uh, talk about your accomplishments. It might be perceived as bragging, right? So in the Australian or English, it's sort of uh, the the poppy syndrome, right? Where it's like you don't want to be too tall and you know tower over the other poppies because you're showing off. But so you need to find some people that you can talk to about because it's not showing off. You worked hard for your accomplishments, so. It's fine to talk about it and to be proud about it, right? If you work hard to get those A's in university, talk about it. It's an accomplishment, right? So don't be shy to talk about it and don't be shy to talk about your dreams to somebody who's close to you because that's accountability. If you don't say it out loud, you're like, okay, I have this dream and you don't, you don't say your intention to anyone. You could disappoint yourself and not not go go through with achieving what you wanted to because you didn't tell anyone. But if you tell someone, it's like, okay, I really have to perform here because I have accountability now. I've told somebody. Um, amazing, amazing words. Um, so many of us think we have we we have dreams, but you're right. We don't tell anyone. And because we don't tell anyone, we don't take accountability. And if you don't take accountability, you're not putting one step in front of the other to get to where you want to be. Um, how did you get into race car driving to begin with? How did, when was the first time you actually took a car onto the track? So the first time was at Pikes Peak, actually uh, Pueblo Motorsports Park in Colorado. 
And my old company, Neotaric Luxury, we sponsored a track day that was hosted by an FFME procurement company, Benjamin West. And so we would go every April and it was two days and it became my favorite networking event of the year. And so we were the exclusive luxury outdoor manufacturer sponsor. And uh, it was amazing. And then we moved, uh, the event moved to the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs and we would go to the Pikes Peak International Raceway. So that was my first experience with race cars on the racetrack. And it was so thrilling. Uh, But then uh, what I had back home was a Porsche 911. And when we lived in Miami, there's really not many places to drive. But moving to California, it is so beautiful here. The topography, it's my favorite place on earth now is Southern California. Is it's You have the water, you have the Pacific Ocean, and you have the driving roads, uh, Sunset Drive, Mulholland Drive, the PCH along the water, and it's just so beautiful. Then when you drive inland, you have the San Bernardino Mountains, and it's just a visual feast no matter which way you look. And I, I, I loved it. So my escape from being a mother, being a full-time business owner was just taking my Porsche 911 and and saying, see you later. And I'm going for a drive and I would listen to loud music. And it just, I felt this sense of freedom. It was my little capsule of privacy where I could kind of be myself because that's the other thing I think that as um, as we get older, we lose ourselves. You know, we're so wrapped up as women in helping other people and taking care of them and taking care of the kids, the business. It was like a full-time thing. And uh, in my case, I also took care of the quality control with a completely opposite time zone in Indonesia. And so I had to stay up late into the night in order to make sure that the uh, manufacturing conti- continued. and. So doing all these things, we lose who we are. We forget we even have hobbies. We forget who, I forgot who Martina Kwan was, really. At the time, I was um, my um, ex's name. And so when I finally decided at the age of 50, after trying for six years of marriage counseling, uh, to say enough is enough with my marriage, the first thing that came to mind is that I'm Martina Kwan. Always have been and always will be. And um, if I do get married again, I will maybe add the name of my husband, but I will not get rid of my name and replace it with my husband's name. So getting my name back, and it was kind of uh, a comedy of errors. The Santa Monica court system lost the paperwork. For the name change, you know, and then you have to submit this paper to every which agency to get your old name back. So anyway, so my name was extremely symbolic and important. And I was sitting on a horse in Dubai on a business trip when the convention center wasn't ready for me. And I, first of all, I didn't even know I wanted to go horseback riding. I didn't know what I liked. I knew I didn't like shopping. So I was in the hotel room and here's, the, here's another, another thing of remembering what you like is to lie back and close your eyes and just think about what was one of the happiest moments in my childhood. And I was like horseback riding. 
duh, like totally always on every single vacation. So I, I took uh, my Durham and I almost took the wrong denomination because the lesser one was red and the more expensive denomination was red. And I almost didn't have enough money for the taxi or the horseback ride. <laughs> but I went out to the desert by myself and I got on an Arabian horse. And I remember, again, loving horses. It was sunset with the full moon rising. And I remembered Martina Kwan. And this is another moment that was such an epiphany for me. So incredible. And I said, I'm going to say enough is enough with my marriage. I'm done. And I want to become a race car driver. And I'm going to name my Porsche 911 Fire Horse. <laughs> what an amazing, what an amazing image. Um, incredible especially being in Dubai. So you you talk about race car driving and um, the corporate world. And you've said in the past, it's, it's a hugely male-dominated world. But even in race car driving, you've carved out a space for you as a person, and you were speaking about your name as well, which is so important. Um, and so many women choose to take a back seat, which they don't have to. Mm -hmm. So tell us where you are now with coaching and what is some of the advice that you give to young women today about where what they need to think about, where they need to be and how they can carve their own space? Mm -hmm. So coaching-wise, um, I have two businesses. Uh, one, so I really consider myself having three hats. One is DK Racing School, which is my race coaching hat. Uh, one is mind-shifting coaching, where I work with both men and women to help change the narratives in their mind. And number three is I'm a love and relationship coach, helping women over 40 find their soulmate in three to six months. So giving back is the reason why I became a coach. Is um, There might still be opportunities in the works for 2024 to drive professionally um, on a grander scale, either in IMSA or the uh, SRO GT World Challenge. Um, but at the same time, it gives me so much pleasure to give back and help these individuals become great. So I do private coaching. We have DK Precision Driving Schools and we have DK Racing Schools. And then we're also doing, you know, uh, advanced defensive driving and also some work with law enforcement. So that's the coaching, the driving coaching. And I'm here at the race track right now, Willow Springs International Raceway, which is where we're located and which is where I met the love of my life here. So the second thing is daring to be different. So one of the slogans when I became a race car driver is um, there were three things that came to mind is daring to be different, be you, and fear nothing. And so my advice to uh, young women today is to dare to be different. Because if you look at the inventors in history, look, they might have been different. They might have been even outcasts. If you look at um, Einstein, he wasn't necessarily the most popular kid. 
right? But he was brilliant and he was not afraid to carve his own niche to be different and to dare to be different. And to a lot of other inventors where things failed, you know, craft cheese failed, 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 failed until they finally got the formula right. Did they give up? No. So as my advice to a young woman is, number one, know what you're good at. Dare to be different. Dare to lead the way. Because if you don't, who will? Right? And then you might want to look to other women uh, like myself in race car driving or as a half Chinese person, whatever it is, uh, to get inspiration. So for me as a young child, when I got my Barbie dolls, they were all blonde with blue eyes. <laughs> so I was missing a Eurasian doll and I was missing real role models that, you know, kind of looked like me. So my two role models growing up was my uh, father's cousin, Nancy Kwan. She is the actress in the world of Susie Wong. She's Eurasian. And then Bruce Lee. And I use Bruce Lee analogies all the time. So one of the other important things, race car driving or to young girls is be like water, my friend. And what it means is that you need to be in your flow. Um, things will even out. If you think of your life as a waterfall, as a water slide, sometimes you have, it ebbs, sometimes it flows. Uh, so don't get stuck in one, one area. Let yourself keep moving along the river and let yourself be carried through life. So what's really important is a lot of us are perfectionists. We're control freaks. We're type A work workaholics. But what I'm saying is I am those things. It's so nice to let go. So actually the theme of my last retreat was letting go. And so whatever it is, letting go of people, perfectionism, OCD, overthinking, whatever it is, think about things that you want to let go that aren't serving you anymore, right? Because if we want to move forward, we need to let go of some things. We need to make room. And that's the other thing that um, I would say to young people in general is that as we, as we our children becoming teenagers and adults. Um, my family was very much a sweep things under the rug. Problems, my sister and I were talking about it the other day. Sweep it under the rug. It's not a problem. Like what problem? It's so unhealthy because we didn't really learn how to deal with the problem. So what I'm telling young people is, and, and older people is, as we go through life, just think about yourself having a suitcase. And things happen, bad things happen, you stumble and fall, you make a mistake, you lost a parent, somebody cheated, like whatever it is, all these things start going into your suitcase and it starts getting really, really heavy. So my advice is no matter what, like, I mean, I had my first quote unquote midlife crisis at 28 to 30. Look in your, like, look at the suitcase. What is in there? And think about things that you can take out. What can you let go of? Because if you don't let go, it, it's going to get so heavy. You're going to feel like there are these heavy bricks on your shoulder. It feels great to let go and like take it out of the luggage and just throw it behind you. 
So um, I would say letting go of things is one of the main things for your own happiness, right? If, if you, if you get upset by things, why are you getting upset? Let it go. Don't let it upset you. Right. And, and then it won't upset you. Um, the, other, the other part of that too, is if you don't let go of that, you don't have any space to bring positive back in. That's so true. So true. And then the other thing is don't complain. Don't wallow in sorrow. Like I like to think of like a little violin. Get over it, right? Like we're from the generation where it's like, just get over it and move on. <laughs> Don't feel sorry for yourself. If you get out of bed and you get out on the wrong side of the road, it's up to you. It's up to you to change. Change the narrative, right? Go for a walk. Don't take the phone. Actually, one one other advice is the kind of the Fitbit so that you don't always have to take the phone with you and which can be distracting and focus on nature, smell the roses, smell the fresh cut grass. Or if you're a cleaner, clean the kitchen. I like to use clocks. You feel like you've accomplished something first thing in the morning and your mood changes. So now you have a new program that you've started to help women who are over 40 find their soulmate in three to six months. That, that floors me. But tell us about that program and um, what you're doing and how and what advice you give to women. So. I coach in different areas, um, but this has become my passion because uh, I sort of had to do all the things that I coach uh, is that I I had to do these things in order to find my own soulmate. So I think one of the things, you know, after speaking with hundreds of women is that most of us have attracted the wrong man all of our lives, right? So what I do is, yeah, so my approach is a three-prong approach. So number one is we've attracted the wrong men all our lives. And then I help women call in their soulmate. And the number one step, the biggest step is to fix our broken picker, right? So why do we call in the wrong men? Broken picker. The GPS wasn't working, taking us in the wrong direction. So, you know, step one. Leg number one is is that it's huge. And then step number two is really ending self-sabotage, right? So even sometimes if we have something good in our lives, it's like, what can we do to mess it up? <laughs> what can we say to mess it up? So um, what's really important is to pinpoint our old patterns in relationships. And a lot of times when you look in your suitcase, stuff is in there. If you didn't deal with it, it's still going to be a gremlin on your shoulder. So um, I call this like, you know, overcoming your gremlins um, or your soulmate self-mastery. But I kind of like overcoming your gremlins because if you don't overcome them, they're still going to be there on your shoulder at every turn, no matter what relationship you're attracting. And then number three is 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of times as women, we're afraid, um, don't quite know what to say. We're walking around on eggshells. We're tiptoeing around the issue. And so what I teach women is to know exactly what to say and when. And so in my retreats, we actually do role play. And it's so useful because a lot of times we don't realize that a lot of times we'll, we'll want to blame the other person, but really it's us that's triggering the other person. And when we trigger other people, we're not going to get what we want. So it's sort of this fine balancing act of, of really um, uh, self-discovery, self-mastery, and knowing how to be the beta woman. A lot of times, a lot of women that I work with are alpha women. And so it's especially hard for them to find a man who's stronger than them. Because a lot of times, and I was the same way, as an alpha woman, it was very hard. I didn't understand what it meant to be a beta woman. But to be the beta woman allowed me then to find my alpha man. So it's this amazing process. And I was able to find my soulmate in that three to six month period in five months. So I am so passionate about sharing sharing this now. So that is my new uh, group coaching program that I'm launching now. And I'm having a workshop on the 28th of October uh, related to this. And it's it's really become a passion of mine because when I think back to, I was just on an empowerment summit and I was speaking about this. And what I realized is, you know, you can go through life and do all the accomplishments that we talked about before, right? All the tellies and the Emmys and the design awards and the race car champions. What does it mean if you don't have the love of your life in your life? And the thing is, you know, you're if nothing's always perfect, you're going to have miscommunications, but you just need to iron them out. Because when you look at people, um, I look at like older couples and, you know, um, of course, sometimes they're going to get irritated with each other, but it's like they have a love that's so um, pure, so unconditional in a sense that they're going to be with each other through thick and thin. And what I realized is having a soulmate for the rest of my life is more important than any of those other things, um, any work, any of the accomplishments, because it's a partner in crime. It's like your best friend that you have going through life. And so for me, one of the biggest things is meeting the person, not attracting the wrong man, but meeting the person that really gels with you. He's the perfect puzzle piece. Right, they're the perfect puzzle piece for you. Yeah, that's wonderful. And yes, it's it's so. But getting back to what you were saying before, and that is truly knowing what you're looking for, understanding what you're looking for, and understanding the differences. So uh, that and uh, amazing. I wish I had known some of that years ago. It took me way too long. So how can people find you? Yeah, so they can find me. I'm on Instagram at Martina Kwan, K-W-A-N, M-A-R-T-I-N-A-K-W-A-N. Or Martina Kwan Wellness is my account that's more focused on these love matters and mind shifting matters and limiting beliefs and sort of my retreats and 
wellness oriented things so much, you know, Quan wellness. And then please feel free to email me at info at martinaquan.com. And all of that information will be in the show notes. So for everyone listening, please check out the show notes because the information will be there. I thank you so very much for joining me today. This was amazing. Uh, there are so many mic drop moments and I can't wait to listen to it all over again um, to pick out some of the things that you've said that I want to recapture in my brain and think about. So thank you so very much. Thank you, Anne. It was a real pleasure being here. Thanks for joining us. Please follow us, submit a rating and review, and share us with your friends. This helps our message reach more listeners. For more information about my products, visit justwantedtoask.com. Thank you.